I launched this podcast because I experienced firsthand the power that one woman sharing her story has to change another. It's humbling every time someone agrees to sit down and tell me theirs. I'm never the same afterwards. I'm still relatively new to the work, which is why I was so excited to talk to today's guest, someone who has been centered on women's stories for more than a decade. I like to tell people stories because I do think it helps to see ourselves in other people's stories. Of course, there's this rule of thumb with writing that the universal is personal, right? The tighter you tell a story, the more universal it becomes and people can see themselves in very specific stories. I'm Michelle Welch from Utah Women's Walk, and this is Legacies, a podcast dedicated to preserving the inspiring stories and wisdom of Utah women. Nyland McBain is the co-founder and CEO and director of Better Days 2020, an organization dedicated to popularizing the history of women's suffrage in Utah. She is also an author and founder of the Mormon Women Project, which collects stories of Latter-day Saint women from around the world. I spoke with her in August of 2020. I'd like to just start from the very beginning and have you tell us about your early beginnings. So I was born and raised in New York City, right on the Upper West Side. And my parents were there because my mother was a singer at the Metropolitan Opera. And my father was a lawyer. They had met actually in San Francisco, where my dad was from originally. My dad was on the board of the San Francisco Opera, and my mom was singing there at the very beginning of her career. So they met in San Francisco. They got married and moved to New York, and I was born in New York, and I was an only child, and we lived um, in a two-bedroom apartment across the street from Lincoln Center, and it was an absolutely wonderful way to grow up. They, um, unfortunately, did not have the best marriage, though, and so they separated when I was 12 and eventually divorced when I was in college, and so for, for much of my childhood, it was just me and my mom, and she was very devout. Our community in New York really was very small at that time. Now the church in New York City is quite thriving, but at that time there were only a couple of wards and a very small youth program. And so it was a very tight-knit community and very much of a bubble where, you know, I had my mom who was a, a professional sort of single woman with one child, no temple marriage, right? And this was in the 80s and 90s, but she wasn't alone in that. There were lots of other professional women that I was familiar with in our church community at that time. Many of them were artists, you know, dancers and painters and other singers and musicians, but some of them were bankers and businesswomen. And so New York kind of attracted that in particular in, in the 80s and 90s, a member who was trying to balance a commitment to the gospel with a desire to seek out their own potential. And it was a wonderful model to grow up with. I should also say that my experience growing up as a member of the church in New York was also was sort of added to by the fact that I went to an all-girls school for 13 years. So I went to school with the same couple dozen girls for my entire schooling. This was a school that really was focused on sort of second wave feminist principles and making sure that we all got the support that we needed at that time in the 80s and 90s to become 
future leaders ourselves. So the curriculum there, the people that I met there, my teachers, the whole sort of aura of that, for me, really served to balance out and complement my faith. I've talked to some class members of other who were sort of going through that same experience, but maybe in other faith traditions, and they had different experiences. They found it a little bit in conflict. They couldn't really reconcile them. But for me, I was receiving a sort of education on priorities, my spiritual priorities and my character priorities at church. And then I was sort of also being supported at school in my temporal priorities and in my ambitions for myself. And I guess maybe because of my mom's example, I didn't feel like those things were in conflict. I felt like I could do everything. And so it was a really powerful combination for me personally. Were there any particular experiences with individual women that you admired growing up that are important? to what's become of you or what you've grown to be? Oh, so many. I had so many strong female mentors growing up. I got to this point after I went to college and after I spent my young adult years in San Francisco, and I was in the um, Relief Society presidency in my ward in San Francisco, and I just saw these problems continue to plague these girls that I was getting to know. And so I think it was looking back at those women that I grew up with that I felt like I had a kind of unique offering in their stories and in the way that they had affected me. And so in 2008, I was home with my third child. I felt like it was a really good time to to put out these stories of, of some of these women. And of course, I'd made new mentors and new women that I admired along the way since leaving New York and since leaving my childhood. And so I actually started interviewing them. And the first person I interviewed actually was younger than me. She was a recent college graduate and she had joined the church after September 11th because she started looking for an equal and opposite goodness in the world than to what she had seen expressed on September 11th. And she found the church that way and had since become an environmental lawyer. And she was a dear friend and I just found her very inspiring. And so I interviewed her. And you're talking about the Mormon Women Project. Yeah, so mormonwomen.com launched with about 18 interviews over the past 12 years. It's grown to hundreds of interviews from about 32 different countries. And I gave up editorship of it about three years ago. And the new editors have just done marvelous things with it as well. They have a podcast and blogs. They do this wonderful Sunday school series where they have essays from a female point of view based on each week's lesson. And they've just done a wonderful job with it. But I did probably about 300 interviews over wow. the course of my time. Wow. Yeah, you know, you know how that, that is. And I love that so much because I just felt like it was, was this sacred time where I would be speaking with like the first member of the Relief Society in Russia, right? Or somebody that had adopted a bunch of children or just had, or maybe didn't have something quite so grandiose, but that they had been nominated by a friend or a family member for some special reason. And it was just a really, really sacred thing to be able to sit down with them for a couple hours and hear their their faith journey. And you're changed, aren't you? When you yeah. interview people, you yourself are implicated and you're changed every time and lifted. At least I've had that experience. Absolutely. I, let's talk about your books, how to be a 21st Century Pioneer Woman, published in oh. 2008, Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact in 2014. First one, you've really done your research because it's kind of, that, that one takes some digging to find. <laughs> that was a, 
That was a collection of personal essays that I self-published. And that was really so in my maternity leaves and kind of when my husband was in business school, I turned to writing and that's what I did with, with my extra time. I had been an English major and had written a lot in high school and had won some awards for my writing. So it wasn't out of the blue. That was my love. But the personal essays came at a time in my life when I actually had the time to sit down and, and to reflect and do that. I wrote a series of, of personal essays. I guess it was in my mid-20s and and self-published it. I think about 10 people read it, which is fine. It's a good practice. Every writer just kind of needs to have the practice of, of, of having something to work towards. But Women at Church came as a direct result of the work that I had done on the Mormon Women Project. In 2012, when I'd been running the MWP for about three years, the public affairs department of the church actually recommended me to a group called Fair Mormon to speak at their annual conference. And Fair was a, a group of apologists, so a pretty, you know, toe the line group that really was a different audience than anything I had ever encountered before. And I took the assignment very seriously. I wanted to sort of push the envelope, but I didn't want to, you know, offend or say anything that would kind of shut them off to me. So I spent a lot of time on that speech. In August of 2012, I presented that speech in person to a very large crowd and said what I thought were pretty common sense things like women are people too. <laughs> we need to have separate identities. We need to have separate roles and responsibilities and purpose. And we need to feel like we can be contributing members of a community and not sort of relegated to prescribed identities that may feel limiting to us. And, you know, I, I tried to address it very personally and with a lot of stories. And, you know, they have it, they had a Q&A session right after the talk, right there on the podium. The way they did it was to collect note cards. So they went through the audience and people wrote down their questions and they collected note cards. The first three I looked at said, you are an apostate. <laughs> And I'm right there on the podium, still looking like trying to find a question to answer. Wow. Wow. So that talk went on to be read about a 250,000 times on the FAIR website. It really was what, you know, had Coford Books approach me about writing a book. And it set the tone, I think, as I mentioned, I've kind of always straddled a couple different worlds. And so I felt like I was in a unique position to sort of to bridge people's understanding on the various poles of this conversation about women's increased participation in church. And I really focused on administration. That's where I felt comfortable. That's where I felt like my marketing skills were best used. I love doctrine and I've studied doctrine a lot, but I'm not a like a doctrine wonk, like I'm not a policy wonk. And again, my marketing training had really helped me look at, you know, who is your audience? What do they respond to? What motivates people? What, what persuades people, right? How do people act? I was much more interested in sort of actions and group dynamics than I was about doctrinal changes. So that's, that's really what um, motivated me to take the approach and so Women at Church, as you mentioned, was published in 2014. Let's move on to your next book, The Pioneering the Book. Tell us about how that came about and why and yeah. the need for that to happen. Yeah. So in 2016, about, I was working for an educational technology company and a friend brought to my attention that Utah was the first place a woman voted in the United States, as we've talked about. And that the anniversary of that, the 150th anniversary of that was coming up in 2020. At the time, 
like, I didn't know that I, we kind of asked our Utah friends if they'd learned that in Utah history growing up. Cause my friend and I were both Utah transplants and very few people we talked to had actually ever heard that as well. So it just seemed like this really obvious opportunity to join my marketing skills with my women's advocacy skills and to make a difference in my, my new home state here. So uh, she and I paired up and we were able to get an appropriation from the state legislature to start a project that would lead us to the 2020 celebrations. But it was, it was really intended from the start to be a sort of multi-channel holistic education campaign. It was not supposed to just be a party in 2020. And so we started with an education curriculum for fourth, fifth, seventh, and 11th grades. We commissioned an illustrator, Brooke Smart, to illustrate 50 women's advocates from Utah here. And that really brought the project alive because it used my skills in sort of, you know, speaking to people on lots of different levels and a sort of narrative and very visual and stimulating level. And, and yet still, you know, advocate for a, a sort of different perspective and a different way of perceiving Utah women around the same time we came up with this idea. We had been reading some of these articles about Utah being the worst place for women based on some national statistics. And so it just seemed like these stories from the past could serve as a reminder of where we came from, that this kind of progressive mindset was in our DNA. Of course, for me, it started out as a desire to really talk about Latter-day Saint women and to really address that same community that I addressed in Women at Church but through a historical lens and sort of just take a different angle at that kind of portion of the membership of the church that may be uncomfortable with these kinds of conversations. But it very quickly turned into a project that celebrated the trailblazing women of all of Utah history, or at least since the pioneers arrived. And so we really focused on representing all of the communities that we could over the past 150 years of Utah's history. I'm so glad that we were pushed in that direction very early on because it really became a statewide campaign. It was really stripped from any sort of religious overtones or any white woman's overtones. You know, even though my team unfortunately ended up all being white women, my historians did an amazing job of seeking out and including the, the other communities that make up Utah today. And it is an incredibly diverse group. Uh, I know, you know, everyone kind of thinks of Utah's so not diverse, but it really is. It's just that we don't do the work to go out there and find those people and those stories and include them. And we did that. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of with that project. It's remarkable. And I love how you use vignettes or stories, short bios of each of the women that you're highlighting. I especially was touched by the Emmeline B. Wells story. You, you can't get better than that one. Emmeline's my personal hero. Absolutely. There's some surprising good guys and surprising bad guys. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. You do have these people, these men and women saying things that feel super progressive to us. Even today, you have Joseph F. Smith railing on the evils of pay gap. Why should a man be paid more for doing the same labor than a woman when she too has to earn her bread? You know, that kind of like just really amazing stuff. And you have Franklin Richards, who was an apostle say that this, this work towards equal, um, rights for women were, was going to be the brightest ray of Utah's glorious star. It was the thing they were most proud of with statehood was that their women were free and enfranchised and treated equally. And, you know, I think in the book, I also try to really confront the fact that polygamy was 
the motivating factor behind the suffrage in Utah. It was the factor behind giving them the vote initially. It was the factor behind the Congress pulling away the right to vote from Utahns in 1887. It was a huge factor, obviously, in the Manifesto of 1891, and then the ability to become a state after the Manifesto. And, and it was a huge factor in the political career of someone like Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, who became the first female state senator in the nation with her election in 1896. She ran against her own husband in the race. She was Angus Cannon's fourth wife. And as a polygamous wife, post-manifesto, she was technically not supposed to be married, right? Or having any sort mm -hmm. of relations with him. And while she was serving in the Utah state legislature, she became pregnant. Mm -hmm. And this literally made front page news around the country. This was a huge scandal. The polygamous men were required to choose a wife as their single wife. And so you, you had people like Dr. Cannon who just didn't accept that, continued to live with her polygamous husband and became pregnant and in a very public position as a member of the Utah State Legislature, that that sort of unwillingness to follow the new law of the land became very evident. And she paid a severe political price for it. She had to leave office and go into exile in England and in California. I mean, we don't understand really, I think that late, late 19th century history around the dissolution of polygamy, how it intersected with these women's lives and how suffrage was really a way that these women used their voice to stand up for their religious freedom and for their right to be able to practice this lifestyle. We don't kind of want to believe that. And that's one of the purposes of the book is that I wanted to give these women their voice back. I just really felt a drive to put my own feelings aside and to let them speak for themselves. And what they said publicly, very important, what they said publicly was that they wanted to practice their religion the way they wanted. They needed the federal government to stay out of their business and that they were going, that they were strong, independent uh, thinkers and that they had their own opinions and that they were voting the way that they wanted to vote, regardless of the way their husbands voted. Privately, many of these women, including Emmeline Wells and Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, expressed the loneliness and the dysfunction of their lives as polygamous wives. And there was no shortage of pain and heartache um, and confusion over this, this, this way of life. They were able to accomplish some remarkable things that no other American women were accomplishing at that time because of this unusual domestic system, which was that they were able to leave their children and leave their home duties to other women and pursue degrees, pursue professions, you know, pursue travel and education that really, you know, in mass, no other American group of women was able to do at that time in history. It really is incredible, isn't it? I'm thinking about Ella Ship. She yes. left children with her mother and her sister wife helped and went back to, with the encouragement of the prophet to, to go back and become a female doctor who then changed so many things for women in Utah because of her knowledge and her expertise. And so it's a unique history and you've done, you've captured it so well and filled a huge gap that has been needed. So thank you. Thank for that. you. Appreciate Let's talk about you mobilize so quickly for better days. I mean, really with, for what you're doing is, is remarkable. What other events and art and different things does better days 2020 have? What you, what have you done thus far and what are the future events and how do people learn about the project? Our organization's website is at betterdays2020.org. 
So that kind of is the the home of all of our activities. But some of our, our what we're most proud of probably is the educational materials at utahwomenshistory.org. So utahwomenshistory.org is a resource specifically for educators, but it's also lot it also has lots of materials for individuals and families and anybody. We have, as I mentioned, we have lesson plans for fourth, fifth, seventh, and eleventh grade. Utah history and U.S. history. They were written by PhDs in curriculum development and history, and they're just spectacular. And they're really age appropriate and fun, but they teach the complexity of this history in a really engaging way. I think that's our one of our lasting legacies is those resources. We also have extensive articles. We have readers' theaters. We've got songs that we commission, the music. We've got coloring pages and activities and all of that. It's a really rich resource. That's really been spectacular to watch it all happen in such a short period of time. Amazing. One of the goals that Utah Women's Walk has comes from a statement by Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, there's nothing particularly interesting about another's life story unless you can say as you read it, why this is what I've been through. Perhaps after all, there is a way to work things out. If you're comfortable sharing, what do you feel has been your most significant trial in your life and what can we learn from you about overcoming a particular difficulty? Oh, that's so interesting. I have so much to say about that. First of all, I really like that quote because I think it plays into my philosophy. If I have a philosophy over my activism for the past 12 years, I like to think of myself as an empathetic activist and I practice empathetic activism. And what that means, I think, is that I like to, to bridge these different attitudes and I like to be that communicator that brings people from one side over to another side and vice versa and, and brings us all to the middle to a place that we can really empathize with each other. It's also an approach to that. Like I like to tell people's stories because I do think it helps to see ourselves in other people's stories. Of course, there's this rule of thumb with writing that universal is personal, right? The tighter you tell a story, the more universal it becomes and people can see themselves in very specific stories. So I think that goes along with her quote very well. I do think that we have a tendency in activism to sometimes block ourselves off from the people we're trying to talk to and say, rather than here are all the commonalities and similarities between us as fellow humans, we often say, I'm the only one who's experienced my pain and my stories and you you can never relate. And so you can never sympathize. I think it doesn't create a sense of commonality and unity and it doesn't see the best in people. The other part of your question was about, sorry, repeat the other question. I was just wondering if you would share some significant trial in your own life and how you resolved it, what you did to solve it or what you're learning from it. I feel very blessed in that I've never had to struggle through single life-altering trial. You know, I've never lost a child. I've never been divorced. But I would say that a sort of common theme in my life is being, sorry, obviously, I guess it is really painful, separated from the people who raised me. So I am an only child and both of my parents have died. And so that's a very lonely place to be in. But more than that, I was raised in a sort of, extraordinarily unique way, right? I was raised in an environment that people literally only see in the movies. I mean, a lot of wealth, a lot of elite sort of New York City artistic community. You know, I grew up backstage at the Metropolitan Opera, like famous people. And 
that's not sustainable. I've made choices that have separated me from the bubble that I grew up in. And so I just think being separated from the people who knew me when I was a child, like there really are a few people in my life who actually could even describe my childhood home or who even knew my parents and very few who knew us as a trio. That was a very small sliver of time and a unique, a sort of unique unit. So I feel a massive disconnect between where and how and who I live with now and those sort of foundational elements of my childhood. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom passing away. I didn't realize. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, she died three three years ago. I'm so sorry to hear that. Do you have any particular um, saying or scripture or proverb or anything that you have hanging on your wall? It's actually by Sandra Day O'Connor. For both men and women, the first step in getting power is to become visible to others and then to put on an impressive show. <laughs> so I just love that because I, I feel like, because I feel like, like with my marketing skills, like that's what I can do. I can put on an impressive show. <laughs> Absolutely. What advice do you have for women in Utah? A life is long and I'm finding that. And I think one thing I wish that more women had a perspective of was how long life actually is. We talk so limitedly about the motherhood years and those years with small children. And I'm almost out of those years myself and decades to go. And I had decades before this. And I just feel like we need to have a much more broad conversation about what it means to be a woman and really embrace that sort of both and mentality rather than an either or mentality. You can either be a mother or you can be a public contributor. No, it's like, there are lots of different eras in your life. I've done some exclusively at some times in my life and other things other exclusively at other times in my life. There've been a lot of times in my life when I've done all of it together. And I think embracing that, that both and saying I can be both something and something else at the same time or at different times in my life is, is really a philosophy that would help. What would you still like to accomplish in your life? So much. I I definitely can see at least one or two other books on the horizon. My husband's always trying to get me to write a book about my family and my extended family, like my ancestry, a sort of memoir. Well, that might happen. Who knows? I would love to continue speaking. I think I've developed a strong enough platform at this point that perhaps that might be a possibility. We'll see. I'd like to continue being a really engaged mother to my three girls. I'm a little nervous about what that looks like after they leave home. I want to be present there for them. My mom, you know, as close as she and I were, she kind of had a whole other second second career to her life. And I, I would like to be closer to my to my adult children than I was able to be with her. And I'd like to have an apartment in New York City one day. Is that okay to say? <laughs> I'd like yes, to get back to New York. Idea. Right. Yeah. You could <laughs> just trace back there anytime you need it. I think that's exactly. Cool. What would you like to be remembered for? I just hope that they see me as a really proactive contributor, as, as somebody you know who loves the performing arts. Like I'm so often a receiver. Like I just, I just take in what other people give me in their performances, uh, and I'm so grateful for it. And I feel like I'm a performer at heart, but I don't really have a skill <laughs> to perform with. So I feel like, I guess maybe this is my way of contributing and performing. And if I can contribute something to others that leaves them with that same sense that I have when I leave a great musical performance, then I will have contributed in a way that I'm pleased with.
No doubt. No doubt you are doing that currently. I'm so impressed with you and have been very touched by what you shared. Thank you. Thank you. We are so grateful to Nylan McBain for sharing her insight with us today. To learn more about Better Days for Women, visit betterdays2020.com. If you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure and share it with a friend as well as subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can also visit the Utah Women's Walk exhibit where the monumental statue connection by Ben Hammond is on display at Thanksgiving Point Gardens in Lehigh, Utah. A thank you to our producer and writer, Tamara Kemsley, and our editor, Ron Cool. And a very special thanks to our supporters, Denise and Alan Alexander, Anne and Roman Takasaki, Julie Bagley, and Shauna Duke. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Legacies.